right, welcome to Sonic Genome. We are what some people are calling a music history podcast. I'm your co-host, Kyle Homerkhausen, and today I'm flanked by the only guy I know who can pull off a fedora, Samuel J. Hackett. Thank you, Kyle. That's a, that's a hard thing to do. I think the only people who can do that are um, Indiana Jones, uh, end of list. So No, yeah, and uh, you're in that rare sort of uh, echelon of people you know it's jaunty it's self-aware it's sexy you uh i won't dote on you for too long but you really (laughs) the fedora just fits um anyways today we're going to be tracking the mississippi delta blues from its inception as slave music to its modern day influences over rock r&b and jazz so a little about the mississippi delta it's not to be confused with the mississippi river delta in louisiana i was originally confused by that um they're two different things The Mississippi Delta is in northwest Mississippi, which is affectionately referred to as the most southern place on Earth. So this is the home. This is the birthplace of the Delta Blues. Um, And it started as, you know, music to move to, whether it's dancing or working or something else. Um, Before it became formally known as blues, the music would typically be paced to the work that was being done, which is like pounding railroad ties or chopping cotton with hose, just getting into the rhythm of the work with the song and your fellow workers. It, may, it makes the reality of the circumstances a little more tolerable and a little more enjoyable. And so these songs make their way from the fields as call and response songs and African-American spirituals to the yards where workers would throw parties and dance to them. And eventually, these songs would make it to commercial dance places where uh, where white people would catch wind of them. There's this dude, W.C. Handy, who's he's considered the father of the blues. He's a, he's an influential figure, all right. And so he tells a story about waiting at Tutwiler in 1903, and he hears this funky sounding tune being picked out on a guitar uh, in the distance. He looks over and it's a homeless dude using a knife to slide across the strings in order to mimic the wailing sad tones of a human voice as he sings about going where the Southern crossed the dog. And so W.C. Handy is a composer at the time. And so he, his skills as a composer allow him to transpose what he hears into the earliest blues songs using characteristic chord progressions in AAB rhyme patterns. This is when blues starts to take a little shape and formalize. Absolutely. So as Kyle was mentioning, this started out as kind of working music. Um, a lot of these songs uh, were to a beat. Uh, some famous songs to name one is Black Betty. Um, obviously, everyone knows the Ram Jam version, but if you listen to the original version by Lead Belly, um, that was like one of the first ever recorded, it's Oh, Black Betty. Bam, balam, and you can actually, you know, picture the people doing this work. Um, so different sounds, the different instruments starting to come to the genre. Um, one of the most important things whenever I, you know, looking at the Mississippi Delta Blues is how stripped down it is. Um, what W.C. Handy saw that night is pretty much mostly what the genre was. Typically a man with a guitar. That's it. Um, sometimes, you know, they would be playing with a knife on the strings, making a loud uh, gliding noise over the guitar, sometimes a glass bottle, uh, also sometimes spoons as well. It really just depended. Or sometimes, in some cases, like the famous Sun House, um, he would just be stomping and clapping and singing. Then the next song on the album, he'd be slapping his guitar. 
Um, there's a lot of cool different sounds, but at the core of it, it's typically an older man sitting on a stool beating up the guitar. Um, sometimes you'll get maybe a mandolin in there, maybe a soft violin, maybe a harmonica. Um, but at its core, it really is just a person and their instrument. Yeah, and that's like as it's kind of comes as a result of uh, like the circumstances that the type of people who make uh, blues found themselves in. Right? These are not wealthy elites. These are these are sharecroppers. They're railroad workers. They're people with very little to their name. And to me, that's kind of like the beauty of the blues is that it's really it just seems like such a raw expression of human emotion absolutely and so these songs typically encompassed familiar laments of like failed romance sexual escapades a life on the road dealings with the devil salvation and damnation just kind of things that i guess are relatable Right. So you have the typical, you have the AAB lyrical structure, um, which comes from working in the fields. That's why in all these blues songs, even just like after it's pretty far removed from its origins, you have these lyrics being repeated because of the call and response sort of style that was popular in the late 1800s and early 1920s. And like we said earlier, this has been happening well throughout the 1800s, taking root from African-American spirituals, um, and like I said, call and response songs. And so this had been happening for a while, but W.C. Handy in 1903, he talks about hearing this dude playing uh, his guitar with a knife, and that's sort of like the first documented spotting. But there were no commercial recordings made until 1920, and that's because until that point, no one was really concerned with, uh, you know, these poor African-Americans and, you know, what they were singing about and what they had to say. But it was only when major record companies in the 1920s realized the potential of the African-American market for race records, which sucks. Uh, it was exploitative, um, but they realized that there was money to be made here. So all these major labels uh, ended up producing the earliest recordings and they still have the rights to these, which consisted mostly of, you know, one person singing and playing an instrument. And so all these record company talent scouts, they go on like these field trips, these sabbaticals to the South. Um, they, they find random people, random performers, and they recorded them either in the South or they invited them to Northern cities um, to record. So you have one of the most prominent ones is Victor Records, the people to record uh, Robert Wilkins and Big Joe Williams and uh, Garfield Akers. I'd say the most prolific recorders of the Mississippi Delta Blues are John Lomax and his son, Alan Lomax, who kind of zigzagged around the southern U.S. recording music played and sung by these ordinary people, by these workers, by these sharecroppers, um, by these common men. And they actually help establish the canon of genres that we know today as American folk music, which Delta Blues falls under. Um, and so these dudes, John and Alan Lomax, they recorded, uh, they were some of the first people to record, I think, Sun House for sure. Um, they recorded Willie Brown, Muddy Waters, all sorts of these dudes who would go on to kind of um, spearhead the Delta Blues genre. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, we've mentioned Sunhouse a couple times, 
Um, there's other people as well that kind of started to gain a little bit more notoriety now that their music was actually available to hear. You didn't actually have to go to a roadside bar a state over to hear it. You could, you know, go and buy it in very small quantities. So you have people like Charlie P uh, Patton, uh, who's actually interesting in the fact that we only have one picture of him. Uh, same with Blind Willie Johnson and Lead Belly as well out in Texas. Um, now, it's impossible to talk about the Mississippi Delta Blues without talking about the interesting myths, lures, and just stories that come out of this place. Um, for example, uh, Blind Willie Johnson, a man who was down on his luck most of his life, slowly lost his vision, um, started to play guitar on the street corner to make some money. Um, someone found him, they recorded him, and he now exists in those small little recordings. Uh, Lead Belly was a man from Texas who was a huge man and played a huge guitar. Um, half of his part of his life was spent in a Texas prison in the 1930s. Um, he went there for stabbing a man. So some of these stories are very, very interesting, but it's impossible to talk about all this without talking about Robert Johnson. Um, some of you may be familiar with Robert Johnson. Uh, he is the man to have claimed to have sold his soul to the devil for his ability to play the guitar. Um, the quick overview of the story goes that uh, he used to play around with Sun House, and Sun House told him to get out of here because his music was horrible. He'd always drive the crowds insane with how bad he was. So eventually Robert Johnson leaves town. He comes back about a year later, a change man, new suit, uh, nice hat, able to play the guitar better than anyone has ever heard ever, impressing people like Sun House, uh, so much so that people become a little bit curious about how someone can get that good in a year. Um, the story goes that he went to the crossroads at midnight, um, went there, started playing his guitar. The devil approached him, tapped him on the shoulder, took his guitar, tuned it up, played a song for him. After that, the deal was done. Robert Johnson could play like no other. Um, eventually, Robert Johnson would go on to cut about 29 records. That's it. We only have 29 songs from this man. Um, more things have started to come out about Robert Johnson. He is a very mysterious figure. There are now three pictures in circulation Ooh. of him. The third one coming from a book recently published called uh, Brother Robert by his stepsister, who is now in her 70s. You said, we, we, you said we recently got a new picture of him? Yes, that's right. So there's two pictures of him. There's one where he's sitting in a nice suit with his guitar, and then another one where he's sitting with a cigarette in his mouth, and he looks like a kind of a surly character. Um, they were doing some digging in this family, and they found a third picture of him smiling, which is not like Robert Johnson. The smiling picture we do have of him, he looks very ominous and almost like the devil himself. He's wearing like a zoot suit, and he just looks very ominous. Um, so it's, it, I would encourage everyone to go look it up after this. Um, but there's been pictures that have come up that they've been proved negative, but this third one is verified. Um, he eventually would go on to uh, die at a very young age at 29 and become part of the tw or 27, excuse me, uh, and become part of the 27 Club. Damn. He was one of the first members. Yeah, dude, he, he pioneered the 27 Club before it was even... He, he was the first one to, yeah. So before Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, uh, Robert Johnson was the first one to be a talented musician to die at 27. Well, he's truly a, um, a maverick in several regards. I do wonder how he actually learned how to play the guitar. I'd like to think he had some like sort of apprenticeship with a wise old guitarist. Well, actually, it's interesting that you say that. Um, the more research we've done on this, uh, Robert Johnson's grandson is still alive. He's about, you know, early 60s. Uh, Robert Johnson's son 
met him only once because he was a blues man and back then that was seen as the devil's work yeah so he never really had much contact with his family um but more has come out in the past few years as you know people have had interest in his music um what they think happened is he went off and lived with a man named ike zimmerman um and ike zimmerman was a fantastic guitar player i've never been able to find any records or you know you things on youtube about him just people talking about him none of his songs are on spotify um, but what happened is they say that he and Robert played in the graveyard every night for a year. And Robert was so determined to become such a good guitar player that after a year, he was able to play like no other. So that's what they say. I'm not sure. Maybe there was some other stuff going on there too, because he met his end by, uh, someone poisoning his drink and he ended up, uh, passing away from that. But wow. the, everything is kind of mysterious around this man. And it really adds to the mystique of the whole genre. We don't know a lot about these people. You mentioned that um, he only had 29 songs, and that was kind of a byproduct mm -hmm. of the uh, of the manner in which these people were recorded, because you just had these record labels kind of just sending scouts out and finding random people to record. There wasn't much, like, formality to it. You know, like, you were probably playing your guitar with a broken bottle um, on, like, the side of the road, and then some well-dressed white dude was like, hey, you want to make a few bucks? Uh, and you play your music and he takes uh, all that equipment and he leaves and you, a lot of these people never really saw their work again. And so or with a lot of these artists, you see their, you don't see their, they, they don't necessarily have albums, but they have sessions, right? So they, they go into the studio once or twice, they record these songs, the, the label presses it into vinyl. And that's really that. Um, and so that's why uh, even like the most prolific uh, Delta musicians um, can you have like 12 songs, which is interesting to me. Absolutely. You have some very prominent figures um, who think about the Beatles career. They released so many albums in the short time that they were a band together. Um, Robert Johnson has still, yeah. you know, maybe not as large a spot as the Beatles, uh, but definitely his own spot within the Mississippi Delta blues and music as a whole and he only ever recorded 29 songs over his entire lifetime. That's it, 29 songs. If you, you can sit down and listen to the entire discography of Robert Johnson in probably about 40 minutes or so. Robert Johnson, he's kind of, uh, he kind of hits his stride in like the 20s. When, um, and and that, that's when, the 20s are when these record labels started coming around and recording musicians. Uh, they gain, or the genre gains more notoriety. Um, record labels initially thought that they were just catering to African-American markets, but really everybody kind of is able to identify with the, the, the lyrical content and just like sorrow of these songs. You see that ramping up in the 20s and then the Great Depression hits and there's an abundant amount of sorrow in the world. Um, so you have all these uh, this Delta Blues music being played, but there's no one around to record it. And so throughout the uh, throughout the Depression, no one's really buying new Delta Blues music. Then World War II comes around. Um, that happens. And by the time that World War II ends, traditional blues kind of falls out of favor with the public. But the Delta musicians are undeterred, and they continue to influence or exert a strong influence um, on the music world, but maybe not from the heartland, not from the Mississippi Delta. 
So you have people like Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf um, leaving Mississippi, um, going to Chicago, um, and really playing a key role in defining the emergence of these new style of blues. Yeah, absolutely. So now that there's these major artists in a large city, you got to remember a lot of these guys grew up sharecroppers. I mean, Muddy Waters' name is Muddy Waters because of where he grew up. Um, so now they have more access to more musicians. Uh, the nightlife is much different. It's not gathering at a roadside bar to listen to a one guy play on stage. These are large nightclubs and they deserve a large sound. Um, so this is where we start to see some of these blues artists start to pick up more um, in terms of their sound. Uh, they add in drums, they add in bass, they add in horns, they add in all these different things. And these bands start to get larger. Um, there's definitely a more, uh, there's more of a focus on the efficiency you can get from your guitar. B.B. Um, King is one of the best examples of this. Um, if you take a look at his music, it's very, very, uh, it's very clean sound coming through his amp. And for anyone who's ever played guitar, you know how hard it is to play through a really clean amp because everything, if you make a mistake, it's magnified. Um, if you have a little fuzz on there, a little distortion, you can get away with a little bit more. But he played with a very clean tone. Um, so there was very little room for errors. Um, they start to play more solos. They start to do things like that. Uh, if you look at a performance by Freddie King, um, he had a huge horn section and he would be dancing around. Everyone would, would be wearing matching red suits. All the guitars and the basses would match as well. So this is a far cry from a man sitting at a train station singing about, what was it, the South crosses a dog or something like that with his uh, guitar and knife. Um, the most important thing to remember, though, about this era is a lot of the content stays the same. Um, a lot of the, the, the blues at its core stays the same. Yeah, you have Freddie King and people like Buddy Guy and Elmore James, you know, trying new things, you know, making the sound larger and more exciting. And there's a lot more showmanship to it. But at the end of the day, they're still talking about a woman's done them wrong or, um, you know, alcohol's gotten to them or the devil may be on their tail. Uh, one of Freddie King's most famous songs is I waited five long years for one woman. She had the nerve to put me out. But he's singing it and he's playing his guitar loud uh, and it's a great sound. But at the end of the day, that's not much more different than a man sitting on a roadside playing about the same exact thing happening to him. Yeah, and they, they sort of take the uh, the sapling of Delta Blues and they grow it and they expand it into this bigger, more defined style of Delta Blues. Um, so, you know, you, you, like you said, you have these high energy ensembles. Um, you have electric guitar, which in many ways, the like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters were anticipating the sound and instrumentation of 1960s rock music, right? Like these guys were a direct precursor to Chuck Berry, um, who, as we mentioned last episode, is a precursor to psychedelia. And so really the, or just the, the connectedness of all this music is incredible because... I mean, you, you, you have dudes from like seemingly unrelated genres uh, who inadvertently play a key role in allowing, you know, like Jimi Hendrix to do his thing. And so just the uh, just the domino effect that, are, that happened in the music industry is very interesting to me. And so you do have you have Muddy Waters and you have Helen Wolf uh, kind of anticipating the new sound, which in a lot of ways, kind of drums up newfound support for the genre, right? People are, they're done with the traditional Delta blues, but this sort of, this, you know, this new Chicago style is interesting. And you see a, a resurgence uh, in support. Uh, a lot of 
which is coming from these young white people. Yes, absolutely. And um, so now one of the largest things we talked about so far was the way that they distributed the Mississippi Delta Blues. Um, you'd find a guy on the side of the road, he'd record for you a couple songs, you'd sell them. Um, this is different with these guys. These guys became superstars. They were signing their own contracts. They made their own money. Um, they were being doled out into every single record store. Um, so this really, as Kyle was mentioning, brought back the blues in a sense. Um, but now it's interesting whenever we talk about the revival in the Delta. Um, so now that there's this large blues music and, you know, everyone's hearing names like Muddy Water, B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Elmore James, as I mentioned, people want to know, well, where did these guys come from? Like, what, what was the thing before this? Um, so a man went down and actually made a documentary about a lot of these uh, old, old, old Mississippi Delta blues guys in the 1960s. Um, you know, these men are now, you know, the, they, their life consists of their front porch pretty much. They've worked their entire lives. And thankfully, we have this footage of people going down there like R.L. Burns, Burnside, who's sitting out in a field playing his guitar by himself. And it sounds like two guitars being played at the same time. So they go around and they start to record a lot of these different artists and they send it back up and they're like, look at this different way of life. Um, not much has changed in this, you know, southern area too much. Um, so now that, you know, it's the 1960s, there's a lot of different music, there's a lot of different lifestyles going on. Um, people are fascinated by this, mostly young, white, affluent college students from the East Coast. Uh, so there's these incredible videos and pictures of people sitting down and listening to uh, the largest one from this revival was Sun House. They're sitting there listening to Sunhouse talk about the death, death jail blues. He's going to jail and he's worried his woman ain't going to be faithful kind of thing. And in the crowd is just a bunch of white kids sitting there clapping. Um, I think it's just like such a juxtaposition between the two. Two very different ways of life, yet their music is still connecting and they're still enjoying that kind of music. Um, so much so that artists like Sunhouse are thrusted back into the spotlight who ends up playing Carnegie Hall. Um, the uh, hype for this kind of music is so high that there are videos and pictures of Sunhouse, a sharecropper from Mississippi, playing at Carnegie Hall. So, you know, the only, they, the only way to get to Carnegie Hall, they say, is to practice. I mean, to practice and also have a huge resurgence in the interest in your music, I guess, too. So that's something interesting as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that, that's fascinating to me because these people surely had, like, resigned themselves to you know, back to their simple lifestyle. They hadn't really been touring. I mean, if they were, it was on a very local scale. And so for all these random white kids to make you rich and famous again in, in your twilight years, it must be such a shocking, um, you know, turn of events. And you got to wonder Absolutely. how they feel or how they would have felt about that because their whole genre is kind of punctuated. Well, for one, like the, the musical content a lot of it is regarding, you know, hardships that white people put them through. And then these record companies come in and they realize that they can exploit mm -hmm. these artists. And so they kind of gain fame there and then it um, peters off. And then you have these white kids kind of being the catalyst of the resurgence of their music. And I just I wonder if they ha harbored any resentment at that time or if they were just happy to be able to play their music, because at the end of the day, they are singing about things that on a bait that are endemic to human nature and that everybody can relate to, right? They're like they they Absolutely. possess this un just this like unique and profound sadness, right? And that kind of connotates the genre, but it, it's not necessarily the genre isn't defined by that sadness. It's defined by the resilience 
in spite of it. And so for them to be able to come back or for, for them to make this comeback, um, I think it's very poetic. Absolutely. And then you have artists like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan who, uh, who are inspired by these dudes. And we know that the, the, those three bands specifically um, had a huge influence over just the next 50 years of music to today. Um, and so they're tapping the legacy of these early blues musicians um, and inspiring a lot of their fans to go, you like be like, hey, like go listen to, to Robert Johnson, to Muddy Waters. These dudes laid the, they, you know, they laid down the, the path that we followed. This is where maybe the genre kind of comes full circle, I think, um, is the London Howlin' Wolf Sessions, uh, which mm. is an album by blues musician Howlin' Wolf in 1971 on Chess Records and on Rolling Stones Records um, in England. And so this is way, this is, uh, way after Howlin' Wolf's resurgence. He kind of comes back in the 50s and does his thing with Chicago blues. Um, but he's he's petering out. He's in his twilight years. Um, he's still recording another session. So this dude in Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco at a Cream concert, this chess record staff producer, Norman Darren, he, he spots the guitar player of Cream, who is Eric Clapton, um, who's probably more famous or more known just by his name at this point rather than his contribution to Cream. But uh, he's, he sees Eric Clapton. He's a fan. They're talking and joking around. Uh, Darren gets comfortable and asks him on impulse, just like, yo, how would you feel about doing an album with Howlin' Wolf? Um, and Clapton is like, really? Like, are you, like, he, he's, he doesn't believe that this is even a real offer because Howlin' Wolf is like, at this point, just this kind of like phantom legend. And so after confirming that this offer is legitimate, Clapton's like, hell yeah. Um, and so they set up the sessions in London through the chess record organization um, to coordinate with Clapton's schedule. And then Clapton goes and he, uh, he recruits Rolling Stone's rhythm section, uh, which is pianist Ian Stewart, bassist Bill Wyman, and drummer Charlie Watts, while the producer Darren, he assembles further musicians, including 19-year-old harmonica prodigy Jeffrey Carp, who sadly died shortly after these recordings, so it goes. But, um, Man, you must be really good at harmonica to be known as the nineteen-year-old harmonica prodigy. Like that is. I, yeah, that's uh, that's like being that's like being told that you can pull off a fedora. I mean, it just you feel good, you know. Exactly, or being like a like a hopscotch prodigy. Like you really must you must like have to elevate the genre to a different in a short amount of time as well. Absolutely, but um, Jeffrey Carr dies right after these recordings, so it goes. And initially, Marshall Chess, the dude who owns the record company, who's funding all of this, doesn't want to pay for all these flights and accommodations to send Wolf's like guitarists and like all these other bands to England. But Eric Clapton's like, no, this is happening or I'm not going to record for you. I'm not going to do anything for you. And he's like, OK, you're Eric Clapton, you're a member of Cream and I will bend the knee. And Ringo Starr is actually part of this album as well. But he is listed as Richie because the producer, Darren, he's under the impression that being a Beatle, his name couldn't be used directly, which is an interesting little footnote. But like Helen Wolf, he gathers this superstar cast of like kind of like of the second generation of rock musicians. And they create this 
this album, which ends up being just a really cool like confluence of all these impactful artists from across eras. Um, and I think it was really cool to see Helen Wolf and the Delta Blues sort of honored in that way by the new age artists. Absolutely. And uh, moving on to like, what has come of this too in today's terms obviously you can go and listen to this record i encourage everyone to do that as well uh but you look at like what clapton's done since that he started something called the crossroads festival um which is home to uh showcasing new and old blues slash rock artists lots of people got their start there it's an incredible concert an incredible festival um that crossroads reference comes from the robert johnson crossroads um you'll see a lot of different references to the crossroads in pop culture because of Robert Johnson. Uh, there are a lot of songs nowadays that reference dealings with the devil, um, you know, people selling their soul and things like that. That really spawns from these stories that came out of the Mississippi Delta. Um, there's been tons of movies, TV shows, a fantastic movie I would suggest to a lot of people, if this is kind of an interesting genre to you, is a movie called The Crossroads. Um, it came out in, I believe, the mid-80s, and it's about a harmonica player who's trying to go down and kind of... Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but um, he may have made a deal that he regrets, and now he's an old man, and he's trying to go and reverse that deal. Um, but there's been so – oh, it's the music's fantastic, too. Ry Cooter did the uh, soundtrack, so there's a lot of cool slide guitar. Nice. Um, but this, this impact continues to spread far and wide. Um, you have a lot of these uh, newer artists like Marcus King, Gary Clark Jr., Joe Bonamassa, and Keb Moe. Actually, Kyle, let you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and so I'm – I'm not super familiar with uh, the more traditional blues artists of today, but what I do know is that the 12 bar blues structure is this music structure that has found itself sort of at the center of a lot of modern day genres, um, like rock, like R&B, like jazz, all of these genres, um, and even more today, like within the alternative umbrella, um, they utilize this 12-bar blues format. Um, and even beyond that, just the experimentation with guitar. You, or you have artists sort of like Jack White and the Black Keys. Uh, you have Beck, John Mayer, the Alabama Shakes. A lot of what they're doing, specifically in their chord progressions, is very, very reminiscent of Mississippi Delta blues. Yeah. Um, and you look at some of these artists, too, now, and the the lyrics are still super similar. That is at the core of these blues music. Um, for example, I'd encourage people after this as well to go listen to Gary Clark Jr.'s song, This Land. Um, it's a song he wrote after living in a nice, uh, affluent neighborhood in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, a man came up to him and was asking if he was doing work on the house. Um, Gary Clark Jr. owns that house. He's made a lot of money from touring, so he lives in this super great house yet his neighbors don't believe that that's really his house. So he actually wrote a song about that oppression he felt, and it just so happens that, you know, it's to the 12-bar the blues. Um, you look at things like Marcus King, he's still continuing that legacy of, um, he has a great song called Rita is Gone. She's been gone for so long, she's not coming back. Uh, Joe Bonamassa has a song called Stop Before You Go and Break My Heart. There's that's still at the core of these. So these men's and men and women are pushing new sounds. Uh, they're kind of blending genres. Gary Clark Jr. has done some uh, albums with rappers where he's kind of done the backing track. He's performed with The Roots, um, and he's done so many cool different things to kind of blend these genres of uh, music. Uh, but at the end of the day, the lyrics and the content stay the same. So it's interesting to know that that man that uh, W.C. Handy saw playing at the train station 
is singing pretty much about the same things that Gary Clark Jr. and Keb Moe and all these other newer artists and Alabama Shakes as well, for example, were all singing about today. So if you are interested in this, I would urge you to go and listen to some of this music. Watch some of the documentaries. It's a fantastic genre. It's continuing to explode in different genres as well through R&B, rap, traditional blues. So it's just very interesting to kind of see that they've taken the sound from the fields in the early 1800s to now. You can find a bit of it everywhere in literally every genre you can listen to. (laughs) 